when he talks about the gift of singleness, he's not talking about a kind of spiritual superpower that we may or may not possess. He's talking about the actual state of being single. And therefore, the singleness itself is a gift. Welcome to the Hope and Help Project, the podcast that cultivates compassionate biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. I'm your host, Christine Chapel, and I'm so thankful you're here to join in on today's conversation with author and writer Sam Albury. We're talking about his book, Seven Myths About Singleness, in order to help Christians, married and unmarried alike, value singleness as a gift from God. We'll talk about frequently misunderstood aspects of singleness, why celibacy and intimacy are not mutually exclusive, and how the gospel of Jesus Christ helps singles to take hold of the unique opportunities their singleness affords and see their role in the flourishing of the church as a whole. If this is your first time listening to the show, be sure to learn more about the Hope and Help Project by visiting faithfulsparrow.com forward slash project. The link is posted in the show description, and by visiting that page, you can learn all about the mission of the podcast. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guest. Sam Albury is a pastor, regular conference speaker, global speaker for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, editor for the Gospel Coalition, and visiting professor at Cedarville University. Hey, Sam, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. I want to thank you for writing the book, Seven Myths About Singleness. It really opened my mind and my heart up to an area of Christian living that I really haven't given any thought to. And now after reading it, I'm a bit upset at myself for not having made the attempt to explore the topic before now. So before we get started with our conversation today, would you mind sharing a bit about your story and why it was so important to write about the topic of singleness from a biblical worldview? Thank you. Yes, I guess there's a a general reason and a more personal reason. The the general reason is I've been in pastoral ministry for actually for nearly 20 years now and uh, have have just seen that lots of instances in in churches where I think single people have felt less cared for and less noticed perhaps than other people have. And, And the more personal reason is because I am single myself. I have been my whole life. So this is not theoretical for me. This is, you know, something I've had to think about for myself, is it is it is it good that I'm single? Should I be worried that I'm single? Is it God's second best for me? Um, what, what's the best way of thinking about this theologically? So that's that's the sort of the personal reason. But as I mentioned in the in the book itself, it's it's relevant to everyone because all of us know single people and are part of churches that include single people. And even those of us who aren't single, many of us over half of us are going to be single again one day. And I was talking to someone actually just a couple of days ago who has been widowed twice. And she was just saying that she has found the grief of going back into singleness at a later stage in life has been very painful for her. And it's just something she'd never thought about because she'd assumed once I'm married, I'll never have to think about singleness again. So it's going to be a personal issue for all of us, even if it isn't currently a personal issue for all of us. And as as members of, of a church together, we want to support, help, understand, honour the various different parts of the body in which we find ourselves, and that will include thinking healthily about singleness. And I, I'm, I also have a, a, a kind of working theory that if we've misunderstood singleness, it's almost always because at some point we've misunderstood something about marriage as well. 
So I hope that's another sort of side effect of of thinking through this issue that we have a a healthier view, not just of singleness, but also of marriage as well. Well, the term singleness carries with it a lot of weight, and much of that weight is not derived from the scriptures, but rather from secular influences or even false teaching in the church. Would you help us understand a Christian definition of what it means to be single? Certainly, you're right. Um, so in our, in our culture, being unmarried is is celebrated. Um, you have sexual freedom, you don't have commitments, um, all those sorts of things. That's not what we're talking about in Christianity. Mm-hmm. If, if someone is single and they're wanting to be a Christian, they're not just being unmarried, they are called to be celibate. Um, we're called to be to be chaste. So it means not just being unmarried, but it means being sexually abstinent. Um, we, you know, we, we don't believe in sex outside the covenant of, of marriage between a man and a woman. And therefore, if we're unmarried, that means we're, we're sexually uninvolved with other people. So it's more than just marital status. It is whether or not we will be sexually active. Um, so in that sense, being Single as a Christian is more constraining than being single as a non-Christian. But we also believe as as Christians that the constraints of God's word are the constraints we were designed for. So it's actually better for us. But it does mean that we're not dealing with exactly the same thing that our sort of a more secular Western culture would be thinking about when they think of singleness, that there is a difference there. The term celibacy is not something I've heard all that often when it comes to singleness. Now, abstinence, yes, I've heard that word used a lot, but not celibacy. You write that celibacy is, frankly, weird for most people today. And I really appreciated the statement you later made about the topic when you wrote, I heard someone describe long-term celibates like me as being like unicorns. You've heard of them, but you never think you're going to actually meet one. Why do you suppose the concept of celibacy is so far-fetched for Christians to grasp today? Why do some view it as harmful or even, in your words, deluded? I think that the, the issue is that our culture believes that expressing yourself sexually is one of the greatest um, goods that there is in the world today. It, it's essential for you to be who you are, to be complete as a person, to be fulfilled in your humanity is to be expressing yourself sexually in whatever way that seems right to you. And therefore, this idea of Christian celibacy is not just seen as as quaint or old-fashioned. It's actually seen as as damaging because in the the eyes of our culture, you are repressing something that is is essential to, to being healthy and to being full. You're actually harming yourself by not... Um, living out your sexuality and fulfilling it in those ways. So that's that's why I use that kind of language that actually, again, there's been a shift in our culture on this. We, it's not just people think we're weird. People think, actually, this is, this is really bad for you. So we have that to contend with as well as our own, you know, temptation and, and longings and appetites and all the rest of it. It says now that intense cultural pressure to be sexually active, which is, I think, far greater than it has been before. 
Your book makes a really wonderful, accessible presentation on both the benefits and the challenges of singleness. Many of us married people, like myself, may be totally ignorant of the difficulties and hardships that accompany single life. Would you teach us about some of the often misunderstood or completely ignored aspects of singleness that married people in the church should be aware of? And is singleness easier or harder than being married? <laughs> Thank you. It's um, it's it's both. Um, there are aspects of singleness that are easier than being married, and aspects of singleness that are harder than being married. So within the, the scriptures, and actually, just we see this in everyday life. So often, there are ups and downs with marriage, and there are ups and downs with singleness. And the danger is that we always think the grass is green on the other side. Mm. And it's easy to compare the ups of marriage with the downs of singleness. If we're single, we think. We only see the good parts of marriage and we think, man, marriage is so much better. And conversely, we can sometimes, if we're married and, and struggling, we can compare the downs of marriage with the ups of singleness. And I've seen both happen. And so we, we need to remember that both have their own unique opportunities and their own unique challenges. And therefore, the moving from one to the other is not going to fix all of your problems. It's just going to exchange one kind of problem for another kind of problem. And if if someone is wanting to get married thinking this is going to solve all of the problems of my singleness, I think they're going to find that very difficult because it, it doesn't. It, it introduces the problems of marriage um, as well as the joys, of course. So I think people sometimes forget the good things about singleness. I think we tend to have a low view of singleness in the church by and large today. So people forget, for example, what Paul taught in 1 Corinthians about the, the unique opportunities to serve Christ, the kind of freedom and flexibility, the, the kind of posture in your life that you can adopt of, of sort of being ready to serve in a, in a wider range of ways. And similarly, I think some people then also forget the difficulties of singleness and just assume your life is all about freedom. And they forget that actually there's the, there, it can be lonely depending on our context, there can be some, you know, that the, the longings to be a parent or the longings to be married can be very, very deep. And it can feel like single people are kind of cut off from this whole massive part of our humanity and sometimes can feel socially cut off too. If if our churches are sort of very much built around the nuclear family, then, then single people can feel like they don't really fit in. They don't really belong. They're not really doing life with others and being known by others. So it it's incumbent on those of us who are single to really learn what the ups and downs are for our married friends so that we can be a good friend to them. And I'd say it's incumbent on married people to think, okay, what are the real ups and downs for my single friends? How can I most understand that and therefore be a good support to them as well? When I think of the word celibacy, I think of a priest or a nun who has taken special vows. I don't necessarily think of the guy or the gal sitting next to me at the coffee shop. It's almost as if the lifestyle is reserved for a very particular sanctified set of people. At least that's what our culture would have us believe. In one of your chapters, you highlight that there are problems with thinking that singleness is a special kind of calling. Can you explain what those problems are? Thank you. I think that's true. Um, Paul talks about singleness being a gift in, in 1 Corinthians 7. He talks about the gift of singleness. And I think we misunderstand that to mean some people have a special calling to be single. 
And therefore, the gift of singleness is this unusual capacity to be able to flourish in singleness, to not find it difficult, and just to sort of ace it. And I think the problem with that is it leaves people who are, are single and haven't chosen to be single, who didn't want to be single, it can leave many of them feeling as though, well, I don't have the gift of singleness, and yet here I am stuck in singleness, which can feel as though God is putting them in a situation and then not giving them the capacity actually to be able to cope in that situation. And I've seen that be a disaster pastorally. I've seen people who have gotten into profoundly unbiblical forms of relationship, and then they've justified it by saying, well, I don't have the gift of singleness, as if that can then justify disobedience. So I think we've got to do more thinking on that. And I guess a parallel issue is what's to stop someone who is going through a challenging season of marriage from just assuming, well, maybe I don't have the gift of marriage and I should I should never be in this marriage. And, and therefore, if I'm finding it difficult, that must mean I don't have the gift of it. And therefore, I can just abandon my, my marriage vows. Um, now, there are times when it's appropriate for someone to to pull out of a marriage if they're in danger, if they're being harmed, all those sorts of things. But the point is, treating the gift of marriage and the gift of singleness in that way leads to a very highly subjective understanding of whether or not we feel we've got what it takes to be married or to be single. So it strikes me that that's, it's just not what Paul is meaning by that. When he talks about the gift of singleness, he's not talking about a kind of spiritual superpower that we may or may not possess. He's talking about the actual state of being single and therefore the singleness itself is a gift and that would certainly fit with with what paul says in in the rest of first corinthians about spiritual gifts being for the common good they're not for the fulfillment of the of the person with the gift they are for the sake and the benefit and the blessing of other people and so whether we're married or single we need to see our our marriage and our singleness as being something has god has given us so that we can be a blessing to other people. So it's not an end in itself, but how can I use my marriage? How can I use my singleness to better serve God's purposes? Now, what would you say in terms of how the church has been presenting the idea of Christian singleness? What are some of the things that you've observed or heard pastors speak about when they talk on this issue? Yeah, it's obviously this is broad brushstrokes, but I think one of the dangers is we look at the cultural approach to singleness and we speak against that, but we speak against that in a way that actually is demeaning those who are seeking to live in a Christian way as single people. Um, so a lot has been made, rightly so, of the, the kind of the trend in our culture for perpetuating adolescence, this idea of just trying to extend well into your 30s and 40s and beyond that sort of adolescent lifestyle of not wanting commitments and life's all about being entertained rather than serving others. Pastors need to address that, but not in a way that makes it sound as though everyone who is single is only single because they haven't bothered to grow up yet. And this can be a challenge because you're wanting on one hand to challenge those who are avoiding marriage because they do want to, to fear commitment. They do want to avoid commitment rather. But at the same time, you want to honour and encourage those who are being single in a way that is honouring to Christ and who believe either that's a great way for them to serve the kingdom or who just don't have the opportunity to get married. So the danger is if we go too much into a kind of culture war mentality on this issue, we can end up 
actually dishonoring Christians who are being single in a, in a godly way that would be pleasing to Christ. So we need, on one hand, we need to, to challenge some people to think more about commitment, whilst at the same time honoring those who are seeking to be single in, in, the, in all the right ways. And the, my fear is that sometimes we've been too thoughtless in how we've addressed that issue. And we've, we've just sort of thrown all single people under the same bus irrespective of their opportunities, irrespective of their attitude. And we can almost make it as if singleness itself is the problem. And we need to we need to kind of go on a campaign against singleness. No, we need to go on a campaign against worldly singleness, but we mustn't treat as worldly and bad what God has said is good and which God has said is a gift. I love the statement you made when addressing a topic of singleness and intimacy. You write, that our culture imagines that intimacy occurs only in the context of sexual attraction goes to show how little our culture actually understands and really experiences true friendship. So what would you say to someone who makes the argument that living without a romantic hope or fulfillment is unfair? How can someone pursue singleness and intimacy with others at the same time? Yeah, this is this is really important. Um, the word intimacy, I think, in our culture has been almost entirely co-opted by the idea of sexual intimacy. And so we, we assume that is where intimacy is found. And outside of a sexual and romantic relationship, there is no intimacy. And the Bible, it seems to me, has far broader categories of intimacy than, than we do. Um, if intimacy is ultimately about being deeply known and deeply loved, then we don't need to be in a romantic or sexual relationship for that to be the case. Um, in the in the Bible, friendship is presented as an intimate and deep and rich form of relationship. So, but I think we've downgraded friendship in our culture because we've put so much focus and emphasis on um, the romantic and the sexual kind of dimension to life. So what I want people to know is that there is rich, deep relationship to be found outside of a romantic and sexual relationship. In Proverbs, a friend is someone who knows your soul. It's someone who knows what's going on on the inside. Jesus himself defines friendship in John 15, verse 15. On that same basis, he says to his, his disciples, I no longer call you servants. But I call you friends because all that the Father has revealed to me, I've made known to you. In other words, Jesus is saying, what is defining a friendship is that you spill the beans, you let someone in, you you open up on what's really going on. And that is that is such a deep, precious way of relating to other people. And it's it's what our friendships are meant to look like. So I'd want to say to someone that if you're single, that doesn't mean you are not going to have intimacy. It means you'll have a different kind of intimacy. It's not appropriate for you to have a sexual romantic intimacy, but God does want you to relate to people deeply and to be deeply known. Um, in terms of romantic hope, romantic fulfillment, on one hand, you know, that in, that's a good gift to be enjoyed for those who have it, but it's not essential if, in fact, as I'm saying, we can be deeply known in, in other ways as well. But I think I'd also want to say that there's a there's a very real sense in which we become romantically fulfilled in Christ. He's the true lover of our soul. He is the bridegroom. He is the one that we are betrothed to. And so even if we don't find romantic fulfillment in this life, and it's worth noting many married people don't feel they find full romantic fulfillment in this life, 
the good news is this life is not going to be our only experience of marriage and fulfillment. And the real marriage, the real romantic fulfillment is going to be in the age to come when we will be with our bridegroom and we will see him face to face and we will be fully known and see him fully um, as his beloved. My favorite chapter of the book was the one about the myth that singleness means no family. I was honestly so grateful for some of the vulnerable emotion you shared as you wrestled with what it means to experience family through being welcomed into the homes and lives of close friends. But you also shared the heartache that sometimes hits when you think about the things you will not have in this life, like children. I'd love for you to share a bit about what it looks like when you hit those moments. What in the scriptures encourages you when you feel like you're missing out on kids? And is there something that single Christians can grasp on in terms of still being able to participate in the creation mandate? Those are really important questions. Um, those moments when it it hits you on what you're missing out on are often unpredictable. Um, you can be quite happily minding your own business and something just happens completely unexpectedly that, that suddenly brings it home to you that there's this part of, of human experience you're not going to be able to enter into directly. Um, so I talk in the book about just being at a, a, a good friend's wedding and seeing at the reception the father dancing with the bride and he'd taken dance lessons especially to to be able to dance with his his girl on her wedding night as a kind of final daddy daughter moment before she became but you know before she was someone else's wife and it I had no reason to anticipate that being something that would hit me but it did that I I won't ever have a a physical daughter to do that for and these things can can feel like mini bereavements I was talking to actually I was talking to a Christian couple who were infertile and they said they're never going to be able to have that experience of having a child and and looking at what you can see of each parent mm. in the physicality of that child or being able to share with the grandparents or oh, look she's got your eyes or whatever it might be and so that there are those moments where it, there's that, that kind of stab of 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 grief um at what you're not going to be able to enjoy and yet again that doesn't mean we're missing out entirely so there are, there are a couple of things that I, I think have become precious to me. One is simply that the creation mandate, I take it, is more than just about reproduction. It's about raising people and contributing to human flourishing. And there is certainly a lot that, that single people can contribute to the family life of others. We can be a, a godly influence in a family home. We can be a role model to to someone else's kids. We can be one more worked example of the Christian faith. And sometimes, precisely because we're not mum and dad, we, we can be a bit more credible <laughs> to, to a child. So that there are ways in which we can contribute to the, the nurture and, and raising of other children as we encourage the parents and as we have some kind of involvement with the, with the, the children themselves. So that's one aspect that actually, I hope my presence in the Lord's kindness and by his grace is enriching the family life of, of others that I know well. But the other thing is that the, the Bible also shows us that there is more than one kind of progeny. There is the progeny of the flesh, and that is an extraordinary gift. But there is also the kind of spiritual progeny uh, that we see reflected in the New Testament. Paul talks of people like Timothy and Titus as being literally his begotten. That's really strong language. He's not just saying, you know, you hey kiddo kind of thing he's really saying that there has been new birth has has come about through his ministry he has spiritual 
sons in Titus and Timothy. Uh, and that's a huge theme throughout the Bible. It's why in those wonderful prophecies in the Old Testament, you see the barren woman rejoicing, because actually she is being given a different kind of offspring through the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's not nothing. Actually, that's eternal. Those who are our physical parents will will long that their children are also their spiritual children. But certainly it's, it's a case that all who come to Christ through our own ministry and who we get to, to shape and form in Christ, there's a sense in which they are our spiritual children. Something that really stood out to me in the book, I, I, I marked up so much of the book, but this one sentence just really grabbed me because it was short and concise and extremely powerful. You write that if marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us its sufficiency. That just blew my mind. Will you explain what you mean by it? Yes, that's that's the book in a nutshell, to be honest. That's, that's a one-sentence summary of what I'm trying to say in the whole book. Marriage shows us the shape of the gospel because it, it's meant to be a model of Christ's love for the church. We see that again and again throughout the scriptures. It is meant to be playing out the kind of covenant promises that, that Christ gives to his people. So marriage shows us that shape of the gospel, um, a gospel of unconditional covenant promises. Singleness shows us the sufficiency of the gospel because it's a way of saying, what I have in Christ is enough. That may not mean that it's it's easy. It may not mean that there's never a time when I, I want human marriage and, and other things. But it is a way of saying that in the age to come, Jesus says we will not marry or be given in marriage precisely because we will have him. Uh, we will have the ultimate marriage. And singleness can be a way, if we're approaching it with the right kind of Christian understanding, it can be a way of saying to our culture, to our world, that that future way of life is so good and so real, we can even be living in that way now. And actually there's there's a sense in which both marriage and singleness point to the age to come. Both are our foretastes of the coming kingdom. Marriage, because it's showing us something of the dynamic of that kingdom and the relationship between Jesus and, and his bride. But singleness too, because it's saying, actually, all of us are going to be single in the age to come in terms of, you know, human relationships. We will be married in Christ and therefore we won't be married to one another. So singleness should be a way of saying that that actually we have the reality in Christ and extraordinary and precious though marriage is in this life, it's not essential to all Christians. We, we can say that actually I've got the thing it's pointing to and therefore I can live without the signpost if I have the thing the signpost is pointing to. So that's what I mean by, by saying that singleness shows us the sufficiency of the gospel. When you reach your destination, that's when you switch off your GPS. You don't, you don't need it at that point. And when we come to, to Christ in the age to come, we won't need human marriage. And so singleness now is a way of anticipating and pointing to that future reality. And it's a way of saying to our culture that is so obsessed by romantic and sexual fulfillment that these are not the things that are ultimate. Um, even at their best, they are signposts to the thing that is ultimate. That is just so insightful. I really appreciate you sharing that with us today. Um, just It really gave me goosebumps <laughs> to, just to, to learn that and see how marriage and singleness both point to the gospel. If I could have 
married people in the audience hear one thing from you, I think it would be for you to share about the common friendship dynamics between married people and single people. You share about anxiety in old age when you write, I lay awake wondering who I'd do life with and then who would look after me. I wondered if anyone would even notice if I fell down the stairs and couldn't get up. I could imagine, and at some points couldn't stop imagining, being one of those people who dies but no one notices for weeks until the mailbox overflows or the smell gets too bad. You write about those times close friends moved away from you and what that change meant for your weekly interactions and companionship. Those are powerful yet heartbreaking reflections that married people don't typically have to wrestle with. So what do married Christians need to be mindful of when they consider their single friends? How can we be more sensitive to their particular longings and their specific relational needs or fears? Yeah, so what I'm what I'm sharing in that section is that there's a there is a fear that as single people there's no one who's really committed to you, and so there's there's a fear you know when I am old, will I have someone to kind of do life with and, and help me? Will will there be you know all those sorts of things? That can be a real fear, and I, I mentioned in the book having lunch with a couple of other single friends, and we we all discovered we shared that fear and we suddenly realized we weren't the only ones who were kind of worrying about that kind of thing. And it's worth saying, actually, again, marriage is no guarantee that that won't be an issue for you either, because I know married couples where one of the spouses dies and the other is, is alive and experiencing old age on their own for many years. So it's not as if marriage is, is as secure a, a thing as we always think it is on that front. But uh, one of the points I'm trying to get at is, you know, people will move house because of work or because of money or because of family. And therefore, it can leave single friends feeling like there is a kind of insecurity to many of our friendships, um, that you're not really committed to me for the long haul. You, you're committed to me for as long as you happen to be in the same city. And I think it's good for married people to know that single people can and do feel that quite profoundly, that we're, we're, we're discarded when other life events move you to somewhere else. And therefore, there can be quite an asymmetry to many of our friendships with married people. We, we will probably need the married friend more than the married friend needs us, and in a slightly different way, because the married person has their spouse as well. They have someone in their own house that they're doing life with. They don't need to schedule time to, to hang out with them, whereas the, the single person doesn't have that. And so I think it's good for married people to know that, that actually those times of meeting up with a single friend may well be more of a lifeline for the single friend than the married person actually realizes. So it's good to be mindful of that. Again, just as it's good for the single person to be mindful of, of the peculiar needs of, of their married friends so that they can be a a good friend and considerate to those kinds of things as well. Well, we're just about out of time, so I would like to invite you to do something that I ask every guest on the show to do, which is to speak directly to the audience. There may be someone listening to this episode who is living a life of singleness and perhaps feels a bit discouraged about it. Maybe they're lonely and feeling ignored by friends, or perhaps they're mourning over the loss of one of those close relationships like you were just talking about. What would you say to this person to give them the courage they need to value their singleness as a gift from God? I would want to say we, we live in a very broken world and those, those pains you are going through are real and they're significant. And we, we just were never designed to live in a world that is this painful. It would also be good for you to know that, that marriage is, is no 
cast iron guarantee against feeling some of those very same things. We, we feel these things and experience these things because we live in a fallen world and we can still feel that kind of heartache and loneliness, even if we're married. And so what we need to know is that actually you need to know God, God knows all of those longings and all of those griefs and understands them even more than, than you do. And that he loves you. He really does love you. Um, he is more committed to your ultimate joy than even you are. And he's not indifferent to the pains that we go through. Jesus himself has been through the extremes of human loneliness and grief and pain. And so there is no pain you or I go through that Jesus doesn't understand far more than we do, which makes him a great saviour to turn to, makes him a great saviour to pray to. He will understand and he does care. And this life is not the only experience we're going to have. We have an age to come to look forward to. And even in this life, he has grace for us. Those are really comforting and just touching words of encouragement for someone who may be feeling discouraged about their singleness. Sam, if there's somebody listening today who wants to learn more about your ministry and your books and maybe check out some of your writing, where can they find you online? Well, I've got a website, samulberry.com which has um, a lot of my articles and other bits and pieces that I might do. Um, I work for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. If you go to rzim.org, um, that should have some of my speaking schedule, other article and inf articles and information as well. And I've done a lot of writing at the Gospel Coalition. So any of those places will, will give you, I'm sure, more than you actually wanted. <laughs> <laughs> well, I... I I will be sure to link to all of those places. And, you know, you also have uh, a good number of books that you've written. And I know, I think I just saw a book cover for a new title coming out. And I really liked the cover, but the name of it eludes me or escapes me. But I believe, here, here, let me say, here's what I do remember. There were two E's and they were wrong facing. Like there was one straight, or I don't know how it was. They were flipped around or something. Yeah, we, we've been... We've been borrowing from Toys R Us uh, <laughs> cover design there. That's a, that's a book that's coming out in March 2020 called Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? So it was the two E's on the, the word sleep that were facing each other, like two faces. There we go. So um, I, I, will, I will feed back to the cover designer that he did such a good job that you remembered the E's and not the actual title of the book. Yeah, you know. Just um... encourage him. <laughs> 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 I'll just have to go to Barnes and Noble's counter and say, you know, I'm looking for that book with the E's. I don't yes. know what it's called, yeah. but it's got E's on it and they're facing the wrong way. Can you help me find it? <laughs> well, so yeah, that's, that's about March 1st. Yeah. Okay. Well, hopefully uh, we can have you back on the program to talk about that because it looks like a really intriguing book and I'd love to um, get the opportunity to talk about it. Well, Sam, thank you so much again for joining us today, taking time out of your extremely busy schedule to talk about your book, Seven Myths About Singleness. I really appreciate all of your insights today. It's been a pleasure being with you. Thanks for having me. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit faithfulsparrow.com forward slash project. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode, complete with links to Sam's books and other helpful resources. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I would be so thankful if you left a review for the show on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. Be sure to subscribe to be notified when new weekly episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help Project a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. 
one more thing. If you're looking for gospel hope and help for life's challenging problems, visit faithfulsparrow.com forward slash email. I send my email subscribers weekly biblical counseling resources on rotating topics. From videos, audios, articles, and recommended reading, these emails are designed to equip you to discover gospel hope and help in your own life. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help Project.